Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, President of the Academy. On this episode, I'll discuss what it takes to build fiscally healthy communities in these challenging times with my guest, Chris Morrill. Chris is an Academy Fellow and the Executive Director and CEO of the Government Finance Officers Association of the United States of Canada, otherwise known as GFOA. Chris, thanks so much for joining me today. Terry, thanks for being here. I'm, I'm thrilled to be a guest on your podcast. <laughs> well, I'm always interested to, mm-hmm. to bring the fellows on. You guys have such great stories to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, yours is a really interesting one. And as the director, the executive director of GFOA, tell us a little bit about that organization and what your mission is. Sure. I'm pleased. In fact, I was a member of GFOA for 30 years before I ended up working for it. So my heart's been there for a long time. But GFOA's mission is to advance excellence in government finance to build thriving communities. Um, We have about 21,000 members in the U.S. and Canada. And of those members, about half are from cities, um, about 25 percent from counties. And then the other quarter are from states and uh, special districts. Um, And that's really where we're seeing a lot of growth particularly in school districts. We're working a lot with K through 12 schools on um, budgeting, uh, matching their resource allocation to student outcomes. Um, that we've, We're really thrilled with that and looking at growing that. Um, so while, while our main focus is our members, we also help to serve communities by encouraging citizens, the media, elected officials to look at our best practices, um, and also the public finance field. And that's where, you know, working with NAPA and organizations like that is so critical to get the the right data and information out there in the public finance field. And and research is a big part of that. Well, that's really, uh, the part you mentioned about school districts really Mm -hmm. captured my attention. Boy, talk Mm -hmm. about challenging times for them um, and and thinking about their finances as separate from their cities and counties even. Mm What are you hearing from school districts as they decide whether to open or not open in person, by remote? What's, what's happening to the cost of managing schools? Yeah, in fact, we've, um, we have a, a, a series of tools called uh, Fiscal First Aid. We've adapted it to the special needs of K-12 schools. And, and you're right, they're absolutely on the front lines. And now more than ever, as they're making the decisions, are they going to open? Are they going to do a hybrid opening? Are they going to do all virtual? And so um, they're extremely challenged. And, uh, you know, uh, and it's different from state by state how they're funded. Some are component units of cities or counties. Some are standalone taxing districts. So it's really a mixed bag, like in most of local government in a federal system. Um, you know, those that are doing well financially and that those that are really, really struggling um, as they're trying. And, and if you think of it, schools aren't just educating. They're providing meals. Um, transportation, they're major transportation providers. Um, so they, they have a huge, huge challenge that they're trying to face right now. Yeah, I think I read this morning about the the long-term economic impact of this reduced operating ability in schools um, and what it will mean nationally for uh, employment and unemployment and mm-hmm. all of those other sorts of social supports that you mentioned, not to mention the fact that parents are having a hard time getting back to work. Um, if, mm-hmm. if the schools aren't available to provide childcare. So you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. You know, getting the school funding right is going to be uh, critical to our overall economic mm-hmm. recovery. Absolutely. We've made a lot of progress really working with the 
the school finance officer, usually the business officer, and, and, and working with the chief educational officer to work together on resource allocation for outcomes, which, you know, with schools, they hadn't really been doing that a lot. And we've seen, seen some real progress in student outcomes by thinking about resource allocation and database decision making. Um, so, uh, you know, it's an exciting time and, uh, and it's just unfortunate that now we have the pandemic and the recession and everything else that they're trying to deal with now. Yeah, well, uh, multitasking and decision making mm-hmm. under stress, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. So, Chris, this, this conversation about um, fiscally healthy communities um, sort of leads into my next question. Um, I mean, you've been a city manager, you were a city budget officer. When the Academy announced its grand challenges in public administration last November, we included amongst those 12 advanced the nation's long term fiscal health. So, hopefully, that made your finance officer's heart happy. Um, mm-hmm. How would you, from the GFOA perspective, describe the nation's health today? If you were giving us a, a patient grade on our fiscal health, what would you say? Sure. At first, I was thrilled to see the Academy have um, advanced the nation's long-term fiscal health because I, I feel like, um, you know, the, the financial foundation it underpins everything that you do. You can have the best programs in the world, but if you don't have a strong financial foundation that's resilient, you can't continue those. So thrilled to see that. And in terms of the, the nation's fiscal health, you know, even before the pandemic, it was very mixed. It was spotty, depending on where you were geographically, um, you know, what type of community you were. And I think um, the pandemic and, um, you know, the, the recession, and um, civil unrest and even climate change are impacting communities at different levels. Um, I think they're all challenged right now, um, but some to much greater degrees. So I think some of the disparities we've had in our nation are just even more thrust to the surface through the challenges that we're facing right now. So you served in a couple of very different cities, Savannah uh, and Roanoke. Mm-hmm. How would you would would you say there are fiscal health lessons to be learned from how they manage their approach? Yeah, you know, so I was uh, I've got to um, I was in Savannah at the beginning of the global financial crisis, and then uh, we were able to implement some things there, and then moved to Roanoke um, and had to start all over again. But it, very different, very different story. So in Savannah, we had started probably a decade earlier thinking about long term resiliency. So we reduced our debt portfolio dramatically, went to more pay-as-you-go. Um, because we had, um, we're very dependent on tourism, we created a, a, a revenue stabilization fund. So in good years, we put money aside. So we were able to get through um, the recession relatively easily without, without a, a lot of challenges. Roanoke, on the other hand, when I arrived, hadn't done a lot of that pre-planning, didn't have good reserves. And so, you know, we spent... Um, Seven years um, while I was manager there, we had to make pretty substantial reductions every year I was there. Um, and the, I think the good news is most communities learned from the global financial crisis. And so when the pandemic hit, we had higher reserve levels in state and local governments than they had ever had. So they had strong rainy day funds. And about 90% of those with um, defined benefit um, pension plans had made some pretty substantial um changes to those to make them more sustainable. So, um, but nobody was ready for both the huge impact on revenue and the impact on expense that, that, you know, local governments have never had to face, at least in our lifetime. Yeah, so so most cities have to 
balance their budgets on an annual basis, right? Similar to states. states. Mm-hmm. And yet um, the National League of Cities just recently released a report that said cities have experienced a greater downturn in their finances over the last six months than they did in six years over the Great Recession timeframe. Mm-hmm. So as you were just saying, you know, uh, some cities have came into the Great Recession better positioned where we're able to navigate it. I would assume the same is sort of true with the situation today, but, you know, communities have got to be seeing user fees falling, tax rates falling, expenses are rising, just as we talked about with school districts at the Mm -hmm. beginning. So if you're a city manager today, sort of what are your options Mm -hmm. to think about how you square that circle? How do you get revenues and expenses to balance out? Right. You know, and I think it's hard for people to wrap their, their minds around how big an impact this has when revenues have you know gone down 20 to 25 percent in some communities overnight. Um, and so there have been estimates anywhere from a $500 billion to $750 billion loss in revenue um, this fiscal year for state and local government. So whether it's the low end or the high end, it's big and it's a huge impact. Um, so, you know, what, what I'm seeing out there is... Uh, Cities, um, especially since you know 2008 is, is still in their mind from the glo- global financial crisis, moved pretty quickly. Recognized the issue, you know, they took those um, short-term steps you can take to kind of stabilize and bridge to more long-term ones. So you know, we're seeing um, uh, freezing vacancies, um, you know, maybe reducing some of the capital projects, delaying some of the big ones. Um, and, you know, things like most didn't have summer programs this summer, sh- shutting down uh, community centers or reducing hours in libraries, um, which can get you through a little bit, um, but it's not sustainable. So I think now they're moving from the bridging stage to the reforming stage where they're looking at um, some uh, the, the good ones are really looking at scenario planning. So they're doing scenarios if this lasts six months or nine months or 12 months or two years with triggers of actions they'll take for each of those. Well, that leads to a really interesting question because one of our objectives in identifying this grand challenge in public administration is to catalyze a national conversation about fiscal conditions, implications, and trade-offs. Mm-hmm. So in, what kind of conversations do communities and community leaders need to have with their constituents about this fiscal situation, how do you engage that community to understand the trade-offs and, and mm. to get their feedback into what's acceptable? Yeah, you know, a great point. And, and we found in our research that uh, successful communities have built trust. So there's there's strong trust between the, the government leaders and community leaders and neighborhoods throughout. And so it, it is critical. Um, I mean, the ideal would have been to have those conversations before the pandemic hit where you've identified your values, you know what your values are that you can make decisions based on. From those values, you've developed financial policies that will guide you. Um, But if you haven't done it, it's not too late. You you can still do it. And I think, um, you know, it does create, and and so government leaders now absolutely have to be completely transparent. You know, the the bad news, the good news, um, you know, I, I think there's always hope. I think you have to be very realistic with it. So, um, be transparent and make sure you reach out to everybody in the community, um, that everyone is engaged in these conversations. Um, and that's the way you'll build trust so you can make those really difficult decisions. Um, and, you know, I, I think the other point here, too, is that it can be an opportunity. I know um, when I arrived in Roanoke, 
like many other communities, um, they were into these big projects. You know, every community wanted a huge commercial amphitheater um, or, you know, big projects downtown. Um, and so in Roanoke, um, the, the big project was this huge um, uh, kind of suburban type uh, library, you know, with the Starbucks and drive throughs and um, they called it a super branch. And um, but Roanoke, it's a community of neighborhoods and 24 percent poverty rate, lots of challenges. So a big super branch on the outskirts of town really didn't serve the people who needed it. So it was going to be 15 million dollars when the when the crisis hit and we obviously had to cut down on our capital it gave us an opportunity to work with the community you know we can't spend 15 million dollars here but libraries are critical and we know early childhood education is something the community cares about so we were able to have a dialogue and instead of 15 million dollars on a super branch on the outskirts of town we spent three million dollars each on five neighborhood libraries to expand their size up, refresh the books and put in technology. Um, and, and I think it rallied the, the community around that. And it was part of a, a greater effort. Um, when what Roanoke's on time graduation rate from high school is 58%. Terrible. Through investments like that and community rallying around it, we, moved, we increased it to 90% last wow. year. Wow. Incredible. In an urban school district with a 24% poverty rate, large refugee community where English was not their first language. But um, it, it, we, we went back to our values. And so I think um, that is the opportunity now to make some of those tough decisions that you don't have to make except in times of scarcity. Well, you mentioned um, this focus on services and focus on the services that the community needs, and especially um, in the pandemic, right, when mm -hmm. We're really trying to deliver, find different ways to deliver all of those kinds of services. But that does make this trade-off in um, investment and infrastructure sort of a longer-term thing. And, mm. you know, across the country, about 70% of our infrastructure investment is made at the state and local level, not at the federal level. Right. So what are cities considering now? I mean, they're responsible for parks and transit and you know, uh, road maintenance and all of those kinds of infrastructure things. How are they making those trade-offs now, even at a time when borrowing is like almost free? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know, how do they think about services now and infrastructure later? Yeah, unfortunately, with borrowing, you're right. The, the, the rates are great, but you still have to pay it back, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> we hope you do. Um, yeah, you know, I think what what we're seeing is some of those larger projects that are being delayed at this point. Um, my hope is that, uh, and we're advising, don't delay the major capital maintenance projects. You need to keep the maintenance going, you know, replacing the lead-based um, water lines, um, keeping the roads in shape, or you're just delaying, you know, fu uh, future problems. Um, so, but I think it is an opportunity to to really focus on that capital and see where you can have the biggest impact. And also, I think we're having more discussions about equity and how you, how you roll out your capital in some of the underserved neighborhoods, which mm -hmm. maybe their sidewalks are in worse shape and they don't have sidewalks that lead to their parks and their parks have not been refreshed lately because the people there don't call their, their, their elected officials as much as they do and maybe the wealthier neighborhoods. So I think it is an opportunity to, to look at that through an equity lens. And we are hoping, and there's some hope that we've been talking at the national level about uh, a national infrastructure plan um, that can really make it an investment 
probably the biggest one since uh, the American uh, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, mm-hmm. which was extremely successful and local governments did a great job, state and local governments did a great job with, is maybe something finally coming out of Washington that can help with that. Yeah, yeah, well, we'll see. We'll keep our fingers crossed for the next mm-hmm. uh, right. release package, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I know GFOA has been doing a lot of work, a lot of research. You mentioned mm-hmm. the fiscal first aid project. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about some of the resources that you've prepared to help support budget and finance officers in communities mm-hmm. across the country. Sure. I'll talk about three we have available right now. First is that fiscal first aid. So we've developed a, it's a 12-step program <laughs> to get from crisis to thriving community um, with uh, uh, resources along the way with case studies, um, you know, on how do you do scenario planning? What are some um, things you can do uh, to balance your budget now? What are some things you shouldn't do, um, you, you know, like... Uh, uh, um, pension bonds and other things that we think are, are too risky. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of resources there that are available for free. Um, and then that's based on um, some research that we've been about three years into now called Financial Foundations for Thriving Communities. And it's based on those of, uh, of and probably many of, of our members have heard of Eleanor Ostrom, um, who the Nobel Prize winning researcher around common pool resource theory. Mm-hmm. Well, we looked at this, this idea of common pool resource theory when you have a scarce resource that can be overused and depleted. And we approached um, some of her principles that she developed with the city budget. So if you think of a budget, it's a scarce resource. Everybody wants to get as much out of it they can. So how can we apply those same principles to the budget? And so we've developed that it's, it's based on five pillars, um, establishing a long-term vision, building trust and open communication using collective decision-making, creating clear rules, financial policies, and then treating everyone fairly. Think about equity in the process. And so we've done a lot of research around that, applying it to local governments for long-term resiliency. And uh, it's, been, it's, it, you know, it's proved very successful. So we're building that out now. Um, so that's the second. Um, and then the third is there's so many unknowns about the current um, programs available um, for the, uh, you know, the CARES Act and other federal programs. So we have a COVID-19 resource that helps governments that there's new disclosure agreements with your debt around the COVID-19. Um, CARES Act, uh, you know, what's eligible, what's not. So we've tried to pull all that together in one place. And we found that we're getting lots and lots of interest in that because there's so many unknowns at, at the state and local level. Well, that's got to keep you on your toes since that space is changing sort of almost daily with different interpretations and regulatory rules around how Absolutely. all of those aid programs are rolling out. So I, right, I'm right. sure that the, the local uh, finance officers appreciate having yeah. a one-stop shop for that. Um, right. And even and, if you decide if, if something's eligible, do you get FEMA funds for it or is the CARES Act funding better for it? And how do they work together? It, it's really complicated. And, and, and you're right. Frequently asked questions come out, the FAQs come out just about weekly that <laughs> change the rules. <laughs> really difficult. Well, yeah. And so many different agencies and so many different funding streams that thinking right. about how to put them together optimally Mm-hmm. Uh, can be a real challenge. Mm-hmm. I know you've got a new effort underway too, though, um, rethinking budgeting in 2020 and beyond. So what's that all about? Yeah, so we we try to do a, a major research project um, for every every two to two two to three years. And so financial foundations was one, but building off of that, 
we realized that if you look at how um, local governments approach budgeting, um, it really hasn't changed much since um, Aaron Vildosky wrote um, uh, his seminal work, A Budget for All Seasons, Why the Traditional Budget Lasts. He wrote that in 1978. And if you look at the way communities approach budgeting, it's, it's very much similar to the problems that it had then. <laughs> um, so I think first people ask, well, so what's different now? Well, I think in 2020, there is an opportunity to really um, modernize and think about local government budgeting differently. Um, you know, we have different mental models now, like our financial foundations. I think we have an, a better understanding about how people make decisions. You know, I think uh, for a long time, there was this assumption that people were rational decision makers. And now we know through research, psychology, that um, people are predictably irrational. So how will that inform how you approach your budget and engage, engage your community? And then, um, you know, technology has really come a long way in terms of different forms of engagement and, and ways to really connect to more members in the community. And then, and then this fourth one, now we decided on this project last fall, but I think it's becoming more and more critical. The fourth one is that there's much more awareness around equity issues um, and the increased potential for conflict if you ignore equity. Um, particularly as we're moving into a time of more scarcity, I think equity is even more critical. And if you think about it, um, how you allocate your resources, your limited resources, kind of tell what kind of community you are. Um, and so we're really hoping that we'll be able to provide our members some tools that they can help their um, elected officials uh, really look at their resource allocation through an equity lens. How do you measure the equity impacts of the budget? Um, you know, so when you're talking about equity-based budgets, mm -hmm. does your tool offer measures of equity? You know, how do you decide if you're resolving those issues or not through the budget? Yeah, I, I mean, so that's a big question. So we're just launching the research now. And so we've brought in academic researchers, uh, uh, specialists in, in decision-making science. And then, um, you know, I think there are more tools in measuring What's the current level of services and infrastructure in neighborhoods? Um, and how can you then address those differently? So um, that's what I'm, what we're, I'm excited about, you know, looking at finding some case studies, some communities that have really dealt with that. And then how do you measure those outcomes to prove that you're, you're, you're um, addressing? And sometimes it could be a you know, decades long um, underinvestment in areas. Well, I know a couple of years ago when the Academy was doing our sort of first foray into these kinds of conversations mm -hmm. and we were looking at governing across the divide and we were looking at innovations in cities. And I remember San Antonio at that point uh, with Cheryl Scully was talking about building equity-based budgets in San Antonio mm -hmm. because they were really on the front lines of right. so many innovations in dealing with um, different communities and different demographics um, mm -hmm. and so it's great to see that being pulled through, especially these days when the social and racial justice issues are so important. Right. And, you know, I can give you one example uh, to the top of my head is uh, there's, a, there's a major city that had, um, they had $5 million a year for sidewalk repair. And so what they did is they had a 311 system. People would call in with complaints. And so they allocated the bulk of the funds toward those. And then they could tick off that they you know, took care of that complaint. Well, then, so they had that database. Then they had people walk all the sidewalks and actually score them. And they found out that most of the funds was going to sidewalks that were in okay condition and not to the sidewalks that were really in terrible condition because 
it just happened that you know folks with a little bit more means were, were more likely to call 311 and complain mm -hmm. than those in underserved neighborhoods. So uh, you know, I think that, you know there's tools like that um, that we can use that can really help uh, decision makers have the data they need to make those those critical allocations of resources. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I want to circle back to the idea of the CARES Act and supplemental funding. Um, mm -hmm. I think those of us who maybe haven't lived the life of a city manager or a city finance officer uh, kind of think of them as their own little fiefdoms out there, and they operate independently. They raise their revenues. They spend their revenues. But help us think through the intergovernmental aspects of fiscal health, right? How does what happens in the national fiscal health level impact states and localities and vice versa? How does mm -hmm. city health impact national fiscal health? Yeah, you're right. They're absolutely interrelated. And in a federal system like ours, where um, local governments are creatures of the states, so we have 50 different systems, it's even more complicated. Um, but like, for example, um, most economists agree, a vast majority of economists agree that we, it took the nation longer to recover from the 2008 global financial crisis because state and local governments took so long to recover. Um, they didn't get direct federal funding. And so they weren't back to their revenue levels until on average 10 years later. So it took 10 years for them to recover. And so, you know, they had massive layoffs, they had reduced services. And so that had an impact on the national economy. Um, so we're hoping that that's um, taken into account as they think about additional funding um, in, in for uh, for uh, addressing the pandemic, the state and local governments will get its share. On the other hand, I mean, it's really state and local governments where, you know, we talk about them as, you know, the laboratory for innovation, and it really is where, where things happen. And if you look at some of the major challenges facing the country right now, whether it's, uh, you know, health-related or public safety-related with civil unrest, our system, it's at the local level. That, that those are really addressed. Um, you know, if you, and, and I think many are realizing that if there's new ways to invest in uh, community health, um, even though for many cities, that's the state function, but they realize if you don't address community health issues, you won't be able to make progress on your educational issues, your public safety issues or others. Mm -hmm. absolutely interrelated. And I think, and I think that's a, an area where an organization like NAPA with your strong research focus and both, both taking the academic and making it practical um, can really serve to um, that national dialogue that we haven't had for a long time about intergovernmentalism and you know, how that all works. Yeah, I think it's you know, the, the um, intersection of so many crises all at once, right, mm -hmm. is really driving a whole new appreciation of how mm -hmm. all of those conditions can't be stovepiped at any level, but certainly right. at the local level, you mm -hmm. kind of have to think holistically about outcome-related services. How does Mm -hmm. How do all of my sets of services deliver better outcomes for my constituents? Right. Yeah, um, and, and Terry, also, Ed, it's not just um, the intergovernmental. Um, it's also, you know, regionally. Um, the, the, uh, successful regions work well together, even though our systems aren't always set up to, to incent cities and counties to work together when they do they're successful. And then I think also um, the cross-sectoral approach, too. You know, in Roanoke, we made so much progress on our high school graduation rate because we take a, we took a cross-sectoral approach with the nonprofit community heavily engaged, Virginia Tech, um, Roanoke College, Hollins University that hire 
education being engaged with the research they can bring to the table. And then the business community realizing that it was a critical economic development um, uh, initiative that they had to take too. So if we can work uh, across governments, cross sectoral, and then intergovernmental, I mean, I think if we can bring all those together, that's where you solve these volatile, uncertain, complex issues. Exactly. And, and that's so easy to do, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yep. You know, <laughs> solve that, right? Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, we're almost out of time. We can talk mm. about this for a long time. But as a closing question here, what's the best piece of advice you've got for these government finance officers right now? Yeah. Um, you know, what I would say, and this was a mantra I used in Roanoke because we were really challenged there, is you know, you're not going to be able to just simply cut your way to prosperity. You can't just cut to it. Well, you'll probably have to make some really hard decisions and reduce funding somewhere. You have to think in terms of investment also. So, you know, what are you going to invest in at this point that's going to make you be successful and resilient and thriving in the long term? You can't just be you can't just be cutting. Yeah, you can't cut your way out of the of the crisis, right? You've got to figure out how to generate those revenues. Well, Chris Morrill, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, Stay safe and well. Okay. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Good speaking with you today. For our listeners, uh, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.